Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. What is the role of ethics, and how do ethics services contribute to the mission of Catholic healthcare? Today's guest, Dr. Beckett Grimmels, offers a unique perspective on these questions. Dr. Grimmels is the System Director of Ethics at Christus Health in Irving, Texas, and he was the editor of the Spring 2018 Special Edition of the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly titled Ethics Services in Catholic Healthcare. In this podcast, Dr. Grimmels begins by discussing the importance of an ethics service and the different models that Catholic healthcare systems employ to provide it. He then speaks to the duties of an ethics committee, the difficulty of maintaining trained ethics committee members, and the challenge of how to implement uniform standards for ethics consultation. He then discusses the primary topic addressed in the quarterly special edition, how ethics services can demonstrate the operational benefit they bring to their organizations. He concludes by identifying future opportunities and challenges facing the field of Catholic healthcare ethics. Beckett, hello, and welcome to our podcast today. Hey, Joe, thanks for having me. All right, I was wondering if you could start out by telling our audience a bit about yourself. Tell us about your background, uh, and specifically your education and your work. Sure. Uh, my name is Beckett Grimmels. I am a bioethicist. I work for a Catholic health system. I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy, and I have a PhD in healthcare ethics. I've been working in Catholic healthcare as an ethicist for, gosh, almost 12 years now. And I have also a fellowship in clinical ethics that I did between while I was writing my dissertation. Um, and I've worked as a clinical ethicist for almost seven years, and now I'm at the system level working with those who do consults in our regions. Excellent. So in your introduction to the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly Special Edition titled Ethics Services in Catholic Healthcare, you state the following. You said, ethics services, quote, are a hallmark of our Catholic identity and essential for, for integrating that identity into the care we provide. Why do you say this? There are a number of reasons for that. Uh, I think a lot of it just simply has to do with our mission and what it means, our mission statement at Christus Health is to extend the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And I think for any Catholic health system, whether they use those words exactly or something or longer or similar, it, it, the idea is still there, that we are here to care for patients in the same way that Jesus did, where he used supernatural means. We do our best to use natural means in science. So in that regard, it's a little different, but the purpose is still the same. And part of that <laughs> is caring for the whole person. And part of that whole person is not just the physical, but also the spiritual, the emotional, the psychological, the social, and I would argue the moral is, is a part of that person. We are moral creatures just as much as we are any of the others. And so we encounter moral dilemmas anything in anything we do in life. And healthcare, I think, often brings to the forefront. And because we're dealing oftentimes with life and death issues, or if they're not life and death, they're issues that often have our life can be life-limiting issues then that raises a lot of questions about how we should behave, how we should act. And anytime you say the word should, you're doing ethics and you're thinking about ethics. So for us as a, as a Catholic health system or any Catholic hospital, since we're called to care for that moral aspect of a person's life, we, I, I would argue we have an obligation to provide them with tools and resources to help them think through these moral dilemmas that they face just as we provide them antibiotics or a chaplain to work with their spiritual needs. Um, it's also part of the ERDs, right? The ethical and religious directives, call it out in Directive 37. And interestingly, that is one of the mm -hmm. components that has been in the directive since the very first edition, way back in the 20s, was to provide some sort of resource for patients and physicians and nurses and family members to have help with these ethical dilemmas that they face. And then that was kind of really brought home most recently by the Pontifical Council for Pastoral Assistance to Healthcare Workers. They released a new charter for healthcare workers, which is kind of a revamp of the one from the 90s. And in there, I'm just going to read it from a quote here, if that's all right. Sure. Paragraph five talks about 
In the principal hospital centers, the establishment of ethics committees for medical practice and clinical ethics services should be promoted. So there's a just even from the Vatican, there's this general sense and a call for a need to help people involved in a patient's care grapple with these moral qualms or difficulties that they face in providing care to those patients. You know, when you were speaking, I, I was I was thinking that um, oftentimes, and I remember when I was working in a healthcare system, when we're talking about ethics, we tend to focus on patients or patients' families and help them, you know, and helping them with making difficult, sometimes, as you said, life or death choices. But at the same time, ethics also serves, I should say, clinicians and other staff members. And I'm wondering if you just speak to that a little bit. Um, how How have you found that the role of ethics has helped your fellow coworkers in addition to the patients you serve? I think it's essential for them. I've seen it really be and you almost kind of see the scales fall from people's eyes sometimes. And it's, it's really exciting for me to be a part of that when I help people either understand something in a way that they've never understood it before, or think about something in a way they never thought of before, or even, even kind of wrestle with the limits of their own obligations to say, what, what am I responsible for? What am I maybe morally culpable for or not? Um, I, I, one of the things I always say is that ethics in the hospital, the ethics committee is a resource, right? We're not a police force, we're a resource. We are here to help you. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, point. it really is. We're here to help you as a clinician think through your professional and your moral obligations that you have to each other as clinicians and also to your patients and your family members. And just as chaplains are there to care for the, the, the clinicians, just as much as they're there to care for the patients and families, so are we. And oftentimes, actually, I find that many of our consults, we don't ever see a patient in. Um, we actually kind of classify consults in different categories. And of those categories, three of the four don't really have an individual patient you're looking at. There's no person to go chart on. Um, it's really there to help the clinicians think through things and analyze things and be a sounding board for them. To, um, and I think that could be anything from thinking about how does double effect apply to pain medicine um, to, you know, why am I feeling such distress, at, moral distress at this situation that I'm facing and what can I do about it? Yeah. Great stuff. All right. You mentioned uh, previously Directive 37 of the of the Ethical and Religious Directives, the ERDs. You also mentioned uh, the new Charter for Healthcare Workers. And both of those documents um, state that, uh, as you said, that some form of ethics consultation service is necessary within Catholic healthcare. So in light of this, what models do Catholic healthcare systems, such as Christus Health, what models do they employ today in terms of doing ethics? Pretty much the only consistency you'll find in ethics models is that they are inconsistent. <laughs> One of the things I often say about Directive 37, and I'd say this applies to the new Charter for Healthcare Workers, and also to the Joint Commission requirement that requires at least hospitals in the United States to have some sort of ethics something, is they're all equally unhelpful as the other as far as how we should do this. And that's, that is in no means a slight or a knock on the ERDs or the Charter of Healthcare Workers or even the Joint Commission. To me, it's a it's something that we should recognize within ourselves as ethicists working in healthcare to say, why is it that we don't have standards for this? Why is it that we don't have a way to do this, even if it's very minimal? Everybody does it differently. Some places will have a full-time ethicist and only the ethicist does consults, and they are there on the floors, they are in ICU rounds, they are talking directly to patients and nurses and families. That's what I did for seven years, and I mean, there were days where I'd never even turn on my computer because I was constantly going to do consults. Um, other places have a, uh, kind of have a, a team model where you've got three or four people who are kind of work together to do consults, and other places will bring an entire committee together every single time they do a consult. And th there are benefits to each model, there are downsides to each model, and I think the field of bioethics, especially clinical ethics itself, is having this discussion right now of what do we want to be? What should we be? What is the best way to do this? And we haven't really figured that out ourselves. But that, that I think, is the calling of this generation of ethicists, is to kind of help bring some guidance and parameters as to what the practicalities of this look like. I mean, the theory is really interesting. We can talk theory all day long. Uh, I, I spent years doing that in school, but the, the, the structure 
and the models of what this looks like in practice, I think are really, are really interesting. I, like I said, some places have that ethicist-centric model where you are really more like any other clinical consultant. You get a cardiology consult, the cardiologist is there that day or the next morning. You need an ethics consult, the ethicist is there that day or the next morning. And others take more of a kind of a, a, a committee approach where you're getting the opinions of everyone involved. It, it may take a little longer to get an answer back to you, which is kind of the drawback of that. But the benefit of that, that model is you get a lot more input from a lot more stakeholders. Whereas the other model, you get you get timely answers. And you you get usually kind of a good answers that are practical for the stakeholders involved in that case. The downside is that places a lot of trust in that ethicist to know what their limits are and to know when they need to reach out to other committee members or other experts for input and not step outside their bounds. So, yeah. I'd like to, ch like to change focus a little bit and talk about the ethics committee itself. So traditionally, the threefold purpose, so to speak, of an ethics committee is education, case, case consultation, and policy development and review. In your experience, how do ethics committees fulfill these roles today? So I already talked about the case consultation a little bit. Um, one other thing I'll mention yeah. to that is that some places will have like a subcommittee that handles each one of these uh, functions, and that might meet regularly or independent of the, the, the broader committee. Some places the whole committee will do everything on their own. It just kind of depends on what works for that culture and what work, what's the size of the hospital, right? You're going to have a very different committee at a hospital that's 10 beds mm -hmm. as opposed to one that's 700 beds. The needs are going to be different, so the structure is going to be different, naturally so. As far as policy development, I see a couple things there that are maybe trends within Catholic healthcare, and that I think in large part is more reflective of the culture of the organization than it is so much the ethics committee. I see some committees that really will just weigh in on, on things, policy-related stuff, when they're asked to. Some will, and that's kind of more of a uh, reactive approach to things. Um, we're here if you need us, but otherwise, you know, we're kind of kind of do our own thing. Others will take a more proactive approach, and if they see a, a problem in a policy or a policy that needs to be created or fixed or revised, they'll go and do it, and then they will then send a committee member to each of the other committees that need to approve this policy before it's it's put in place. And others take even a more even more proactive approach than that. I know some systems or regions are looking at standardizing policies throughout the system or the region. And the ethics committee, in some places, is actually leading that approach um, and maybe even helping out with policies that are very tangentially related to ethics. And others, there's just a central member of that discussion and helping to weave kind of ethics and mission into all policies, whether they're directly related to ethics or not, or maybe they're only dealing with some that are only directly within their wheelhouse. But um, so it's kind of, again, a spectrum of approaches there as far as policy development is concerned. Education, again, I think the only consistency is inconsistency. And, and it, what I find <laughs> is that committees tailor their education to the needs of their facility and the culture of, of that hospital. So I have seen some committees that will do an annual conference that it has you know, continuing education credits for physicians and nurses and chaplains and whomever. And maybe they'll even open it up to the public and they will invite nationally renowned speakers to come in and they'll do a day or a day and a half of that. I mean, they'll have some two or three really big names on their topic. And I see some that, that might do something a little more, a little more narrow in scope to where they'll do that, but only for their own internal folks and they'll have local speakers come in. I've seen some that do like an ethics grand rounds and once a month or once every other month, they'll invite everybody in the hospital to come listen to it presentation or a series of case discussions on ethics. And I see some that really only do targeted education. Um, we'll do it if you ask us to when you need it to, and, and we'll come and provide that. And even within our own system at Christus, we have committees that run the gamut on these options based on their needs. Um, one thing that we've been doing in Christus is providing uh, webinars. Every other month we have a, an ethics webinar that is broadcast internally to all of our physicians and associates who are interested not just our ethics committee members, but even outside of that. And then we record those for, for viewing later. Um, but it, 
which brings me to kind of the second component of education, which really depends on how, how you fill that function, depends in large part on how you see it scoped. So I've mostly been talking about how do you how does a committee educate the physicians and, and, and clinicians in the hospital. But I think the, the question to me that's really almost more interesting is how does the committee educate itself? Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great challenge that I had as well too. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so talking about what the standards are for that, what should a committee member know in order to be a part of the ethics committee? How much training and education should they have? Again, in some places, you've got like uh, you have maybe have to have a certificate to be on it, or you've got to have um, some sort of standard program that the hospital give you. In some places, it's a hey, you've been nominated to be on the committee, and you're meeting next week. Good luck. Uh, maybe I have too high of a bar, but I'm not sure that's the best approach for an ethics committee member. But again, both within and without of Catholic healthcare, that's not that uncommon, unfortunately, because no, because we don't have standards. There are no standard expectations, either from an industry's perspective, from a field perspective, or, or anything. I, I could just hmm. describe a little bit about what we've been doing internally in Christus is we have a, a standard orientation for all of our committee members. If you're gonna be a member of the Ethics Committee in Christus Health, at least in our US facilities, you have to go through this orientation. And it's offered a few times a year by the, the local committee chair or the mission leader. If you want to do a clinical ethics consult in Christus Health, we have a two-day training program we require you to go through, which talks about both the theory and the practice. And we're working right now on developing a set of, uh, well, I guess a, a criteria for core curriculum for all of our committee members as far as what education they need to be on the committee for those members who are not going to be doing consults, something we're creating right now. So Becca, what challenges do professional ethicists like yourself have in recruiting, educating, and forming or training members of ethics committees? You talked about some of the things that you do to train them, but what are some of the challenges you have to get people in and then to get them to complete this training? Oh my training? gosh, Joe, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> a lot. Uh, <laughs> A lot, honestly. Um, it's everything from getting people who are interested in it. That, that's one of the, the, the bigger things because all even places that have full-time ethicists, their committee members are still volunteers. These are people who have another full-time job and they say, I like this enough that I'm going to spend some of my free time doing it. That's basically the kind of person you're looking at. So that's not going to be a lot of people off, off the top. Then you have to have somebody who's not just interested, but is good at it. They have to have the right, right educational background. They also have to have the right personality. You have to be able to have very difficult conversations that are sometimes can be very unpleasant, not just complex nuance, but possibly unpleasant, but do that in a collegial manner without kind of taking things personally or, or getting overly emotionally involved in things. Um, and then you have to have people whose supervisors and bosses are okay with them spending that time doing that. And that's not mm -hmm. something that that's always going to be the case. We've had, you know, several people who would say, I'd like to do it. I want to do it, but I'm being pulled in so many different directions from my regular job that I just don't have time to do it. Or my boss has told me I don't have time to do it. And I've seen that in every, every place I've ever worked. And I hear that all the time from my colleagues. This is not unique to any one place. Me too. Uh, that's true everywhere. And, the other, the other thing that, that's difficult is just general turnover. Hospitals have, in general, some significant uh, voluntary turnover where people just leave the organization and go to a new one, go to a new job. And that's that's a challenge that we have, too, is we've, you know, we've trained, I'm, I'm guessing here, maybe 250 people through our two-day training to do ethics consults. I think we maybe have 175 left just because people yeah. leave for new jobs. So it, it, that's one of the biggest challenges to that kind of model of having volunteers is keeping people in it. Right. Yeah, it, the retention. it really is. And then is. on top of that, yeah. you know, I also have the, the, the difficulties I mentioned in educating people, getting people to say, I'd like to do it. I've got the disposition. I'm great. And I could probably spend an hour a month on an ethics committee. I can't spend two days doing a training program. So we've been very blessed to be able to, at least at Christus, to be able to have enough people who are willing and, and who's thankfully we have the institutional support from from leadership to be able to commit to that education and training uh, to be able to provide it.
And, you know, I, I recognize that we're blessed in that regard. Not everybody's going to be able to do that. Um, and I'd like to be able to do more than we do. But, you know, at some point, you're able to do what you can. Great. All right. A few uh, a few minutes ago, you you mentioned standards, and I'd like to to pick up on on this issue of standards. So, Directive thirty seven of the ERDs, as you mentioned before, said, states that there must be quote appropriate standards for medical ethics consultation unquote. How do you understand these standards that the ERDs reference, and how are they implemented at Christus Health? I think the way I understand or interpret that phrase standards for medical ethics consultation in Directive 37 is really twofold. I think when, when one part there's kind of a content piece to it, and another part there's more of a, a process and structure piece to it. From the content piece, in large part, I see that as what is that deposit of, of moral tradition that we have within the Catholic Church, right? What is the, the standard understanding of what defines an abortion? And what is the definition of proportionate, disproportionate means, and how that plays out to particular cases and, and situations. So in that regard, I think we are actually really well placed in Catholic healthcare to set these kind of standards. Because in large part, we already have it, right? We have a magisterium who defines things for us and has done so for hundreds and maybe 2,000 years or so. And it's nice that that's there because we've got, nope, this is the way it's done. I can say I've got a clear, definitive, authoritative teaching I can point to. That's not always going to be the case in, in, in outside of Catholic healthcare. Um, and, and even in Catholic healthcare, obviously, there are these morally open questions where there isn't definitive teaching on it. Um, but at the least, I've, it, even, even in that case, I've got a tradition I can look to and draw from, right? a shared understanding of what it means to be a good person, of what the human person is and should be. When it comes to the, the process pieces, that's where I'm, I'm kind of, I think Catholic healthcare is at a loss. I'm at a little loss as to say what that really looks like. I see different systems doing it different ways. Um, I think a trend that I'm seeing right now is a system will say, well, this is how we do it, or these are the options for how we do it. That was one of the reasons behind me picking that topic for the special issue of the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly uh, last year was because I wanted to give different Catholic systems a chance to say, this is how we do it. And, and maybe, ideally, that would push us in a conversation as Catholic healthcare and as Catholic ethicists to say, how should we do it as a field? This is how this system does it. This is how that system does it. How should we do it as a group? Is there some, even if it's a very minimal set of standards, is there some set of standards that we could say, this is the best way to do X, Y, and Z kind of process? So as far as what the ERDs are actually referencing in that from a process standpoint, I think it, it, it's a little hard to say, but you know, I, I think different systems are interpreting that differently and, and applying that differently. Right. Well, you teed up my next question very nicely when you mentioned the uh, special edition of the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. So one of the challenges facing ethics committees and ethics professionals like yourself is the need to quantify or calculate the operational benefit they bring to their healthcare organization. And this is in large measure what uh, precipitated the, speci the special issue of the quarterly that, uh, that you edited. Why has this need arisen? And what standards, going back, going back to the previous question, what standards are Catholic healthcare ethicists formulating to respond to it? That's a great question, Joe, because that was, that's kind of the second piece that it actually prompted me to, to look at this, this question and that issue. And we were blessed to have two authors write um, pieces on how they do exactly that, both Mary Holman and Mark Repinchek um, were, were gave great contributions on, on that regard. I think the reason why we're starting to see this is because th this issue, this question come up a lot, is because finances in healthcare are getting exponentially smaller than what they ever have been, and, and the future does not bode well for that. I mean, we're one-sixth of GDP in the United States. That kind of financial burden on the country, it's not sustainable. And so as... The, the current finances and future finances are shrinking, 
hospitals are always looking at, at ways to do things more efficiently and cut costs. And that means that everybody, every department is having to show their worth. How do you benefit the patients? If we're here to take care of patients, show me how you benefit them. That's really what we're being asked to do. And I think that in the past, we've kind of rested on our laurels and said, well, obviously we do good work because we're helping people sort through moral dilemmas. Therefore, maybe we don't need to prove that. It, I, I, I'm of the opinion that just because we're doing good work and doing spectacular things doesn't mean we get a pass on quality and data and showing our return on investment and, and our benefit, right? If I'm going to ask a CEO to invest in an ethics conference or funding an ethics committee or hiring an ethicist, I need to show that CEO why that money is better spent on an ethicist than buying, you know, building a new hospital in, in a part of town that needs access to healthcare. I think when CEOs and CFOs ask for that, they're only doing their job as stewards of the resources of the institution. And and quite frankly, it's it's time that we answer that question as a field. I just wanted to follow up with that because I remember when again back when I was working um, in a healthcare system, we had this question not so much with ethics but with our chaplains. You know, show the um, you know demonstrate the 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 operational benefit of chaplaincy. So it's it's, it's a very similar question. It's a different question, but it's a very similar question. But the question I had then, and it's 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 a similar question to what I'll ask you now. How exactly do you measure the quality? of an ethics service or how do you quantify the importance of ethics? How do you, how do you do that? How do you actually make that case to the hospital CEO? So those are actually, they seem really similar questions, but I would argue they're two very different questions. And I, we've got some inkling on how to answer the second one, as far as how to quantify it, as far as what makes a quality ethics consult or quality ethics service, that I think is what we're still debating as a field. Um, I, I can point to a couple things and say that is completely inappropriate, but other than that, it's really hard to say and paint that great picture of what it means to be a spectacular ethics committee. One of the, the best resources I'm familiar with that really looks at this is the Striving for Ec Excellence in Ethics document from the Catholic Health Association, which was mm -hmm. written in response to ASBH's uh, core, competence, core competencies for ethics consultants. And that was kind of meant it was meant to be a response to that those are really the only two documents that look at that and and i think they're great resources for anyone who's looking at the quality of their committee or assessing where their committee is but even those documents themselves are somewhat controversial not everyone necessarily agrees with all those points and even when you really look at them they're they're still very broad they're not extraordinarily specific as compared right. to what standards you might expect from uh you know a, an oncologist or an obstetrician but as far as quantifying the operational benefit that we have, I think we are we do have some some good ways to answer that. They may not be the best ways. They're not going to be the same as you would look at maybe your return on investment for building a new cancer center, for example. But I think we do have ways that we can show that. And we've had that data in the literature for quite a long time. And I think this is one thing that's it's good to point out that this is not unique to Catholic healthcare. And we have the ability to turn to our colleagues in secular um, bioethics who are doing some really interesting work in, in this, this regard. I mean, we even have things like randomized controlled trials that have shown operational benefit from, from Catholic, no, sorry, from ethics consults. Um, and, and so we know that data is there. The, the ways that we've looked at it um, internally to Christus and the ways that the two articles in the special issue look at it are looking at things like length of stay and readmission rates and net margin per case and seeing what relationships can we draw between patients who get ethics consults and those who don't and maybe even to the general population and, and how do we as an institution um, you know pay attention to that another thing that it just did not come up in the special issue but i know has come up in the literature quite a bit is looking at turnover we talked already about turnover that's very expensive for an institution and we also know that right. in the literature, moral distress is a significant cause of turnover. Yeah, it's things that one. people weren't trained to do in, in, in school, right? In nursing school, you learn a lot about how to assess patients and how to care for them and provide treatments and interventions. 
you don't really learn how to deal with a family member screaming and yelling at you about why their patient's dying and I want you to resuscitate them. I don't care if they said they wanted to be DNR. He doesn't know what he meant when he said that. How do you deal with that patient family member who's screaming and yelling at you? You don't learn how to do that in nursing school. And that's where, where that just, that's one could be one of the causes of moral distress. And if you have that happen day in and day out for six months, well, who can blame you for wanting to quit, right? And so an ethics committee can develop tools and resources, and we have the ability to help people deal with that distress, and provide them ways to think about it, and provide them practical responses for it. And we know that that well, one of the things that at least we're looking at, Christus, is how does that then reduce turnover? And if we can stop a couple nurses from leaving per year, well, that's a, that's that's reason to fund your ethics committee right there. Um, it, it, the estimates it depends on the part of the country you're in, and it depends on the kind of specialization the nurse has, but the cost to an organization from one nurse leaving to a new nurse is able to completely take over that role and is not being precepted or, or trained anymore is anywhere from forty to $70,000. And so, again, if you can stop two or three nurses per leaving per year, that, that's quite a substantial budget. Right. right. Do you have any evidence, um, either at Christus or outside of your organization that um, an ethics service actually does have, uh, has prevented uh, turnover? We're looking at that uh, right now internally. I don't know of anything in the literature that looks at that question specifically. We know that in the literature okay. that moral distress is a significant cause of turnover. That's been proved time and again right. all over the country in big hospitals and small ones from, it is large part nursing literature, but uh, there was a great study in Baylor uh, in Dallas a few years ago that looked at the whole house, and they found pretty much the same levels of moral distress in everybody from nurses to physicians to residents to physical therapists, social workers, all the way down to environmental services staff. And so we know that moral distress is related to turnover, and we know that moral distress is, is pretty pervasive. And we also know that ethics committees can reduce moral distress through different actions and things that they do. That's been shown in the literature quite a few times. So we know that A is related to B, and we know that B is related to C, but nobody's looked at whether or not A is related to C. So that's what we're C. looking at right. internally right now in Christus, and I would imagine there are other systems that are doing similar things. That would be uh, that would be some very interesting research to uh, to publish. I think the quarter yeah. probably would be interested in that if that were to come out. All right, so changing gears once again, um, I'd like to talk about the role of organizational ethics. Um, what is it? What is organizational ethics? And what specifically can the ethics committee or the ethics professional bring to organizational issues? I kind of see organizational ethics as not that different from clinical ethics or in any other type of moral discussion because you're asking just general questions about who you want to be as an individual. Or in this case, it's who do we want to be as an organization? And once we figured out who we want to be, well, what actions will help us do that? How do we function if that's who we want to be what should we do if we say we have these values this mission this goal this ideal it, it's how do you as an entity not just as an individual but as an entity represent yourself to your employees to the other organizations you work with and the community as a whole what what decisions do we make what actions do we take that will live out our values and ideals it's kind of basically navigating these situations that you face, the decisions that you're making, and, and doing so by trying to balance out your values and what's important to you and how you believe you should exist as an entity, as an institution. From One of the things that I often encounter in my role now, as opposed to my clinical role before, is working with leaders of the organization. How do you as a leader best represent the organization in the decisions that you're making? How do you as an individual live out that calling that you have that you, the organization has asked you to do and in, in, in fulfilling its own mission? Because right, the, the organization at the end of the day is, is ultimately made up of individuals one way or the other. And mm -hmm. so I, I think that to me is one of the, the, the other aspects of organizational ethics is not just how does the entity itself function, but how do those leaders in the organization function and living out the ideals of, of the entity. So one of the things that, that, that we have at Christus is a, a decision-making process that we ask our leaders to use whenever they're making major impactful decisions. And it's, it's a process that 
is designed to really help them ensure that our values are infused in those decisions that they're making. Um, you know, not decisions so much so as do I drink Coke or Pepsi with the dinner, um, but decisions like you know, how do we use this new capital that we have? What what is the best way to fulfill our mission with this? Or um, you know, we're facing a, a budget shortfall. What is the best way to approach that? that budget shortfall and what do our values call us to do in this situation but really more to the point who do our values call us to be in this situation and then from that right what can we deduce about what we should be doing based on who we're called to be and so any any business decision that our leaders make that any other large organization would face those are the kind of things that that process is is designed to be used for and, in my experience, almost every Catholic system has something similar to that. You, you preface the answer to this question by saying there are similarities between between the two, but is do you find a different process when you're doing ethics on the on the system level or the macro level versus doing ethics with individual patients or with their family members or even a clinician, sort of more on the micro level? I can see where there there are similarities in terms of what you're doing, and you know you're trying to you know in, in inculcate the values, either the values of the system or the individual's values, and and you know what 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 their decision says to them or says of them as people. But is the process of doing the two different? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, it's different, and but there's there still are some some analogies I think between the two. So from an organizational ethics standpoint, we're not asking you to exclude your own personal values as a leader. But what we are being clear about is that you don't necessarily have to like or agree with the decisions that we're making. All we're asking you is to say, what is the organization's value? And how is that best upheld in this instance? It may not be your own personal value. You may not necessarily agree with this decision, but is that what the organization is asking of you based on its values and its mission and its ideals? I think there is an analogy there to the clinical realm in that when we talk to physicians or, or nurses or even family members, the focus is on the patient's wishes. Right. I'm not asking you, doctor, what you would do, and I'm not asking you, husband, what you would do. I'm asking you what your wife would do. What would your patient, what would she want to do? Um, and yes, your own personal values and ideals certainly have a, a play in that. And I think at the end of the day, if you have a serious problem with that, then that that's that's where you have the right to recuse yourself. That's what conscientious objection is about. But but there is kind of that, that similar thing to what is that tension between my own values as an individual or professional uh, religious beliefs versus the values of my patient or the organization or the institution. Um, but as far as a process piece, it, it is very different. Um, with organizational ethics decisions, you usually have a lot more time. Um, it, it's pretty rare that you say, we have to do this. We have to make a decision now, or we can't revoke. We can't revoke it. Um, right. Whereas, if, if you're making a decision about life support or resuscitation, it, it's often one that has to be made pretty quickly, or at least it can be. And so, the process for that is is often different. You you know you have time to schedule a calendar appointment a few weeks out and and come up with a decision there. One other thing that that I, I really like about organizational ethics, at least in, in my experience in Catholic healthcare, is that when we're using one of these decision-making processes, we have the option to have it facilitated. We might, if it's a very serious decision, we might bring in a formal facilitator, like a mission leader, who whose role is not to impose their opinion, but to really be a mirror to the leaders and, and, and ask the hard questions that they may not want to ask of, the, of themselves. And I think that's, that's a really important role in that organizational decision-making process. And to some extent, you could say that the, the, the clinical ethics consultant is there to do that in the clinical realm. Uh, but, but again, the, the way that you do it more slowly and purposefully and intentionally in the organizational realm, I think, is, is a little bit different than you often do in the clinical realm, just in large part for time constraints. Yeah. How, do, um, how do leaders respond when you, as you say, when you, when you mirror to them and ask them the hard questions that they don't want to hear? In your experience doing that or, or knowing people who've done that, what has been the response of leadership? I find it to be usually positive. Um, and I think in part that's because if they didn't, if they had a problem with, with being asked that question, that they probably wouldn't be in the room. Um, and, and to be honest, <laughs> they probably wouldn't be working for, for a Catholic 
um, Catholic health organization. Because if you have a personal value set that is completely antithetical to Catholic health care, it, it is going to be difficult to work in a Catholic hospital, I think, just because you have that big dissonance, just like it would be hard for somebody who is, I don't know, very seriously concerned about the environment and, and you know, goes to Greenpeace protests on the weekends, it'd be hard for them to work for an oil company. And it would be hard for a pro-life person to work at, at an abortion clinic. It, you, you have that natural clash of deeply held values there. And I, I see that in our leaders. Our, our leaders, they know what they're getting into when they sign up to work in Catholic health care. And, and for, for most of them, that's a, that's a huge draw to it, actually. Um, so I, I usually find it a welcoming presence. Um, now, in, in the moment, are they are they extremely pleased? Maybe not sometimes, depending on the nature of the question. But 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 they, they come around to that, right? They say, I'm, I'm glad that we looked at it. I'm glad that we, we scrutinized this stuff. And oftentimes it's because, you know, if we don't scrutinize it internally, people will do it outside. And, and you know, if, as I often say, it's better that we're able to do this and have difficult discussions internally than it is um, for, for that to be looked at externally without us having looked at it seriously. So Becca, what's the future for Catholic healthcare ethicists? What are the opportunities and challenges that you see on the horizon? I think this discussion of standardization is going to be um, one that that repeats itself a lot over the next decade or or maybe even two or three. Um, It's going to take us a while to really wrap our heads around what can we say that we all agree on um, and and how, how thick of a consensus can we get on these kind of things. I, and I do know that, you know, many of my colleagues aren't really that, me, some of them aren't, maybe not be that interested in doing that and having that discussion. Um, and you see that, I don't see that so much in Catholic healthcare, but especially in outside of Catholic healthcare, ethicists, there's a, quite a few who have published on the idea that you can't get such a standard, such consensus can't exist, and, and nor should we be treated. Um, so I realized that perhaps there are going to be those who are interested in, in joining that consensus. I think that's okay. I still think we should continue on for those who are, you know, those who are willing. I also think this return on investment piece is going to be really, really important. Being able to justify, from a financial operational standpoint, committing these resources in this, as opposed to another endeavor, because. Whether we like it or not, the reality is is that any resource you commit to an ethics committee is a resource that could be spent somewhere else, right? That that is resources that you could be spending on a new clinic, right. a new service line, hiring a new doctor, uh, a new nurse, or you know, getting a new treatment option, or and a clinical trial to develop a new treatment that isn't currently available. So we have to be able to show why we're spending that money here, why we should spend that money here as opposed to elsewhere. I think you can make that argument rather convincingly. We just have to be willing to spend the time and effort to do that. How would you respond to uh, someone who maybe a college student or maybe even a graduate student who's thinking about a career in Catholic healthcare ethics? What, w- what would you say to them? Oh, that's a perfect question because the, the third challenge I was going to mention okay. for the future of ethicists is actually recruiting new, new ethicists um, into the field. The, Catholic Health Association has done several surveys over the past decade, I think three. I think the third one has, has yet to be published. Um, but they've, they've looked at the demographics of ethicists in Catholic healthcare, and we're kind of approaching a, a demographic cliff. <laughs> yes, um, we are. And the, if I remember right, the estimates are by, at least the last one I saw was by 2029, so 10 years from now, it was like 76% of ethicists in Catholic healthcare were going to retire. And that, that's pretty concerning. Uh, and there aren't many coming in to take their place. And I think in large parts because people don't know about it. Never considered it as, as an option, as a career, or especially never considered it as a vocation. Um, I know I certainly didn't. I kind of fell into it. Um, looking back on it now, it was pretty clear to me the Holy Spirit was dragging me through it the whole way. But I certainly couldn't see it at the time. And I find a lot of my colleagues working as ethicists in Catholic healthcare have similar stories. Um, oh, I, me too. Absolutely. I'm, I'm nodding my head as you're speaking. <laughs> we, we all kind of fell into it unbeknownst to ourselves. Um, and so we're 
looking at developing these kind of pipelines and how do we help young people who are interested in that, or even honestly mid-career people. I know quite a few people who actually the, the the woman who mentored my fellowship, my clinical ethics fellowship, was a nurse who went to law school and then did a fellowship in ethics and started working as an ethicist. So that was a, that was a second, might even argue third career for her. Um, so I, I think there are a few ways to get into it. I, I don't think that there's a one absolute, this is the only way you have to do it. Like if you want to be a doctor, you pretty much have to go to medical school, right? If you want to be a nurse, you got to go to nursing school. Um, to be an ethicist, I think you first need to figure out what what you want to do. Do you want to do academics? Do you want to work at a university and teach and write and, and, and do presentations at conferences? Or are you interested in working in the hospital setting, uh, being a clinical ethicist, being at the bedside and on the units and working directly with you know, doctors, patients, nurses, families, that kind of thing? Or are you interested in doing more of what I do now, which is more at the system level um, or a regional level, where you are organizing those who do that clinical work and you're interfacing both with leaders in the health system and with the, the ethics committees and providing them tools and resources to do their job and their clinical work. So I think there are different skill sets for each and I think there are maybe different paths to each one. but. Um, I think ultimately you need some kind of undergraduate and graduate degree that's in a related field. It could be theology. Mine is not. I actually don't have a degree in theology. My degree is in philosophy. I certainly have a lot of schooling in theology, um, but that's that's not what my degree is in. And I actually know quite a few folks who work in Catholic healthcare as ethicists who don't have that theology background. And you see that outside of that too, right? It could be philosophy. Maybe it's social work. Maybe you're a nurse mm -hmm. or a physician who goes and gets a master's degree in, in, in bioethics. But and there's also, I think, doctoral degrees. I, I, so the Catholic Health Association has a document that they created a few years ago, and they updated it last year. It's called Qualifications and Competencies for Ethicists in Catholic Healthcare. And that gives kind of some guidance both to ministries that are looking to hire an ethicist and to people who are looking to get into the field as far as what kind of background experience you should look for. And they actually make that say, the same distinction there between the, the clinical level versus the system level, and, and they provide different backgrounds and degrees and, and educational um, ex and experience levels for each of those realms. But um, right, but again, they're looking at. They even suggest me if you have an MD or a JD, you can go get a, a master's degree in something else. But uh, I think if you're looking at the system level kind of work, they, yeah. they do expect a, a PhD or some kind of doctorate in bioethics or the equivalent for something like that. But the, the clinical work, it, it could be a master's yeah. degree in bioethics with some other kind of background as well. Yeah. I'm just thinking my uh, in my past life, I was in the academic world and now in, in the healthcare world. And I, for anybody who's listening to this uh to this podcast, I can tell you right now that the the opportunities are much greater in the Catholic healthcare world than they are going the academic end. So, I had uh, actually a, we have an internship that we offer every summer, and I was I was talking to someone the other day about it, and, and she said I just realized that moral theologians are almost a dime a dozen in academia, mm -hmm. and it's odd to say it that way, but it, it is becoming increasingly difficult to to find jobs as academics. So this is another avenue for, for those. What else do you do with your theology degree besides be a youth minister? Uh, or, or go to, right? Well, here's one thing you can do. Um, Absolutely it is. Beckett, any final words of wisdom for our audience? Well, one other thing uh, before we get to that, Joe, one other thing I wanted to mention is if, if for okay. someone who's doing clinical ethics, um, the, the CHA suggests a preference for someone who has a fellowship in clinical ethics. Uh, those are few and far between. They're hard to come by these days, but I would also recommend that. I think it, mine was very invaluable, um, and I think it provides you a lot of expertise and training under someone who has that mentorship to be able to do that. Um, so that's one other recommendation. Beckett, any final words of wisdom for our audience? As an ethicist in Catholic healthcare, I'd, I'd ask the audience, especially those who are ethics committee members, to kind of look at what options there are for standardizing your processes either within your own system or with your colleagues in other systems and talk about the, the ways that you do things. 
Um, I, the more I do this, the more I'm surprised at, at how people practice and work. And I, I had a conversation just a couple of weeks ago where I was very shocked at, at something I, I learned a colleague never did in a consult, whereas I always did it. And I, I couldn't couldn't imagine how you could do a consult like that. And it was amazing because I know that this this ethicist in this hospital had a great functioning, well integrated ethics committee and consult service. Um, so just to have those discussions and. I'd also encourage everybody to read the special issue of National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly on this topic. It was the spring 2018 issue. And just kind of see what Catholic hospitals are doing as far as the structure and standards and how they provide ethics services to their clinicians and patients and family members. But the more we have these discussions as ethics professionals or those who are involved in ethics committees, I think the better off we're going to be as a field. And the last thing I would look for is, you know, start looking at your data as an ethics committee and look at, I think the two articles by Mary Holman and Mark Rapinchek in that special issue are good guides for that. Look at your return on investment data and see, I think you may be surprised at, at the value that you can show your clinical consults are bringing to the institution, especially for those who are kind of hard pressed for resources. I've been amazed at the response of our leaders here in Christus, um, once we've done that, I think they, you know, they were kind of surprised once we started looking at it and, and seeing what, what we found. Becca Grimels, thank you for an excellent interview. Thank you very much, Joe. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to support them and the National Catholic Bioethics Center, please click the donate button on our website. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.